This program is supported by A to Z Wineworks, a best for the world B cup dedicated to combining commerce with conscience while offering great quality, food-friendly Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Chardonnay. A to Z Wineworks, the essence of Oregon. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. On March 11, 2020, right before the tip-off of a game between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Utah Jazz, Jazz center Rudy Gobert tested positive for COVID-19, and the National Basketball Association suspended its season. The billions of dollars at stake at such a decision drove home the severity of COVID-19 to the United States, and the country soon went into lockdown. The NBA also showed extreme caution when it resumed play within a bubble at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The league didn't even allow entry to the players' families until weeks later. As for the NFL, it gave players the option to wear a new mouth guard that can maybe prevent the spread of the virus. The danger of football, along with the feeling that it must go on as usual, is serious. In the October issue, Kent Russell explores America's addiction to the sport and WWE impresario Vince McMahon's attempt to reboot the XFL, a league that promised to fill the football-shaped hole in fans' hearts while adopting rules that made the games... faster. And that's their theme song. I spoke with Russell about the appeal and failure of the XFL, McMahon, and the mystery that is football. You know, irony is often written off as a very easy pose. Mm -hmm. And it was something that was supposed to have died on 9-11. But as you note in your piece, the president said we should all go to the mall so that the terrorists don't win. (laughs) And then a bunch of other really absurd, cruel stuff has been happening ever since. Mm -hmm. And irony has been propelled into this whole other level. And it contains a lot of, it contains multitudes. So- How did you navigate your own ironic attachment? You love it, but you also enjoy how ridiculous it is. Mm -hmm. You also kind of hate it to the XFL while writing this piece. Because if you went, if you went too far one way, it wouldn't be readable. Right. Uh, No, that's a very good question. And I mean, yeah, I totally agree that one of the things that I always try to do uh, when I'm reporting on something is to just try to avoid that kind of like ironical anthropological stance where like, look at these rubes or like, look at this absurd thing in the same way that um, in like heart of darkness, like Marlowe is retelling <laughs> his tale to like the gentlemen and gentle women, you know, on the same boat as him. It's not like I ever try to go out and like bring back stories of horror to like the gentle readers, you know? <laughs> so that's something that, yeah, I definitely am always trying to avoid. And in this case, like as easy as the XFL is, as a thing to kind of, take a dump on and, you know, be really ironic about, like, I, I do have legitimate fond memories of the original league for all of its, you know, uh, absurdities. And when I first heard about the league, uh, potentially being resurrected, you know, back in 2017, thereabouts, the, the first thought was, Oh no, here we go again. You know, it's, they're going to double down on the ridiculousness. They're going to attempt to, you know, like so many movies attempt to kind of reboot in, in a kind of nostalgic and ironic way. Like mm-hmm. perhaps maybe they would be attempting to do this as well. 
what became apparent as new details were leaked about the, the reemergence of the league, it became apparent that what they were not going to do was in any way try to play to the to the old sensibility of the original league. So, you know, I mean, at least in terms of beginning to think about how one would even like write about this or kind of conceptualize it, the very fact that the league itself was like trying its damnedest to have like none of that old kind of like, uh, you know, brand connotation go along with it. Like, mm. uh, you know, they, I mean, aside from my own aversion to a kind of irony in, in certain reported pieces, it, it became obvious that like the league itself wanted you to take it seriously despite the fact that very many in the stands did not want to take it seriously. And in fact, <laughs> they wanted to reprise the role in an ironic way of, oh, this is, we are XFL fans. We are going to play the role of XFL fans. Isn't this funny? We're going to, you know, uh, yeah. body slam ourselves through foldable tables while we tailgate and stuff like that. So I think, you know, perhaps there was a little bit of disconnect between what the XFL wanted to present itself as and what the people that came to the games wanted it to be. You know, that's actually an interesting kind of vein that I didn't really write about but thought about a lot is how the the audience was very much kind of clamoring for that kind of ironic nostalgia. And they wanted, you know, to fill the role of men and bros of a certain age who, you know, want to kind of enact a, a, a Buffalo Bills mafia kind of fandom, but the league, you know, was trying to uh, keep them at arm's length in that way. Anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying, yeah, it would have been very easy to put on Zubaz pants and, you know, <laughs> drink a, a handle of 151 and then just, you know, be an XFL fan and write about, you know, how, how ridiculous it all is, but you know, football is a serious game and you got to approach it seriously. So. Yes. No, it's uh it's America's sport. Number one. Uh, it's very beautiful. It can be very beautiful. Right. It's also very violent. Yes. Just like professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. And there is a certain uh, creative force behind the XFL behind the WWE and that, that man's name is Vince McMahon, <laughs> and uh, he's kind of a classic male asshole genius type, but also right. a businessman, which is a really potent mix. So for the uninitiated, can you try to explain who mm -hmm. McMahon is and his impact on sure. wrestling over the past you right. know? Couple and, of decades. Uh, yeah, no, and, and, and my apologies ahead of time to all the smart marks or smarks out there, as they're known. <laughs> the, uh, the really vindictive wrestling fans who uh, frequent forums. One of my best friends who I, uh, I have given the pseudonym of Jay in, in the piece, he is really like he's a wrestling lifer, a wrestling, you know, been a wrestling mm -hmm. fan his entire life. He wanted to be a professional wrestler when he was, you know, a kid and a young adult. And so he really is the one who has explained to me all the kind of, you know, intricacies and strange mythoses and stuff like that that surround all of wrestling. Yeah, so I, I you know, watched wrestling casually as a, as a kid, but I was never too invested in it. But from what I understand, professional wrestling in the United States, at least in the last century, was, was a fiercely kind of regional thing. There were all these regional scenes and regional leagues, and wrestlers could travel between those uh, leagues and, you know, geographical boundaries, but they were, you know, kind of like it, mafia cartels in a lot of ways where they would, you know, fiercely kind of police their borders and stuff. And then the McMahons, I think McMahon's father was the one who, who began it. 
they really started consolidating all these you know local geographical wrestling outfits and they became this kind of huge behemoth that over the last kind of 25 years of the 20th century just became like the wrestling company. And, you know, at the end of the 90s, there were still some stragglers, but eventually they too, you know, kind of got subsumed by this behemoth. And so, you know, McMahon himself, you know, he still runs the WWE. And I think where the original XFL emerged was, like you were saying, you know, it, it, it takes a certain kind of American original, as it were, to be the guy who is like the wrestling impresario and the magnate who, you know, just completely uh, took over what is a true American art, professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think from there, he looked to, you know, the landscape. And I think there's always, from what I understand of McMahon, he's always had this great aversion to referring to professional wrestling as professional wrestling. Like any kind of great theatrical character, he has this great shame about like what has caused his, his own kind of standing. And, you know, he, he, does, he wants you to call it sports entertainment, not professional <laughs> wrestling. So th- there was always this kind of, I think shame and sense of illegitimacy about like, you know, what he did or, you know, what, what wrestling was. So in the, in the late nineties, he looked to football, you know, America's favorite sport, as you mentioned, and this huge money earner. And in fact, what is very interesting about the, the kind of history of professional football in America is football obviously runs in the fall and it runs, you know, the, the Super Bowl is in January, then it's in February, and there's no football in the dead of winter and then in the spring. And so there's there has been this long history of entrepreneurs and kind of, you know, oil men and all these kind of interesting and maybe unsavory characters attempting to fill that void where obviously there's this huge in ever-present appetite for football. It doesn't just go away in the spring. And there have always been these guys who tried to fill that demand with a spring football league. And they've all failed. You know, they, they've all just kind of crashed and burned even after some initial successes. And anyways, a roundabout way of answering your question, I think McMahon was this magnate who kind of nursed a sore spot as to his own, you know, legitimacy in the eyes of the powers that be. Perhaps there's something that's kind of consonant with the guy who is currently occupying the White House in that regard. These people that, you know, they they seek legitimacy in these other industries. And so, yeah, he, he tried to launch a football league and tried to eat into, you know, that kind of market share that wasn't being served. And it initially... Uh, was a success until it very much wasn't. And then, you know, that, that dream doesn't die. And he tried to reprise it. And the same exact thing happened. I mean, aside from, you know, Corona stepping in there, but it's the, it's the great dream that lures a lot of sports entrepreneurs and will continue to lure them the idea of a spring football league. Right. And I mean, how would you describe the McMahon aesthetic? What is the McMahon touch? <laughs> um, well, from again, from what I understand, the the aesthetic, at least historically, kind of solidified in the late '90s with the Attitude Era of the WWE, which was formerly the WWF, and that was kind of over the top, violent, swaggering coupled with just like brazen sexuality, like just, yes. <laughs> you know, absurd, truly gauche, you know, in poor taste, 
you know, like a cartoon wolf whistle sexuality. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he brought both of those components of the aesthetic to the original XFL. And that was, of course, kind of what doomed it was a lot of that, you know, oh, th- like, for instance, as the ratings were plummeting in the original XFL, they had an attempted kind of subplot where, you know, in, in professional wrestling, they have all this intrigue outside of the ring and you have right. all these weird filmed promos and subplots. And so McMahon tried to bring that to the original XFL. And one of those plots included him attempting to barge into the, you know, cheerleaders dressing room, you know, of course, doing so like head first, whereupon he knocks himself out. And that leads to like a dream sequence involving a berobed Rodney Dangerfield, you know, so that, that, that is kind of the McMahon touch to answer your yeah. question. The, the berobed Rodney Dangerfield after you <laughs> attempt to invade the privacy of women. But uh, yeah, so they, they, they tried to, uh, you know, shy away from that in the second go round very much so because, you know, I think, McMahon has rightly uh, sensed the, you know, the change in the cultural trade winds, but it it is it has always been kind of historically a uh, uh, he likes big big guys, big macho men, big garish, over the top kind of personalities, and uh, and uh, of late he's tried to cut back on the uh, the ridiculous sexuality a little bit. Well, respect. Thank you for respecting women. Uh, and your essay emphasizes an aspect of football that's not mentioned very often, but mm. feels important, which is the role that secrecy and a kind of esoteric knowledge play mm. in the overall experience, which uh, for some people is completely maddening mm. and makes me never want to watch it. Some people, most of all the players, are positioned closer to the heart of this mystery, while compared to them, the average fan is, as you put it, a veritable ignoramus who enjoys the sport for reasons that he can neither articulate nor altogether comprehend. In the line after that, you describe football as a mystery cult. Mm. How deep does that analogy go for you? Because mm. it's it's almost like a cliche at this point to call a football an American religion, yeah. but... How specifically do you think this encounter with the unknowable fits into the game's weird appeal? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of like afraid to press the metaphor too far because, I mean, yeah, the idea, it's always been this way, especially, I I mean, just for me personally, I mean, uh, growing up, there was always this sense that, you know, in the same way that uh, Samuel Johnson says every man feels meanly of himself for, you know, neither going to war nor going to sea, like the sense that one enjoys football as like a young adolescent boy, but like without having played it in any organized capacity, which I never did, you know, like that there's definitely that aspect to it where it's like, are you going to to become an initiate of this, uh, you know, mystery cult? Will you enter the temple and kind of begin to understand the the strange and arcane teachings as you were talking about? And yeah, I think that there is, like, in some ways, I'm glad that I never did, aside from you know not turning my brain into mush. But like, I th- there is something about just being able to watch the final product as it's presented on the screen, right? Like being able to watch like the, the multicam, very slickly produced end product and not have to know 
either like the algorithmic instructions that go into constructing each play or even to know, you know, like the, the, the blocking schemes that like that, you know, left tackle has to, has to do to combat that blitz or whatever it is. Like uh, in the same way that, that I don't want to know like how my video game is programmed. I don't want to know how <laughs> Amazon comes up with its algorithm that shows me what book to read next, you know, like as a football consumer, like I'm very happy that I never entered the you know temple to Orpheus or whatever and like uh, <laughs> and began to kind of learn the the sacred mysteries. But yeah, I think that that's definitely it, it's interesting to me as somebody who recognizes that I I know nothing about the sport that there I mean maybe there is maybe I haven't looked hard enough for it, but there doesn't seem to be anything that like attempts to bridge that divide. You know, and and Mm. I I guess I was kind of hinting at that a little bit that for as much as you get like the the Bill Jameses in terms of baseball who, you know, want to statistically break down everything Mm -hmm. and just want to kind of get inside the game and almost like a matrix like way where you see, you know, the cascading green code. Like I don't (laughs) see I don't necessarily see the same kind of if not desire, then the same kind of. Kind of person emerging from the temple to be like, I, I have learned all the secrets and now I'm going to, you know, give them to you, the average person. It does seem to be almost like a like a confraternity of magicians in that way where nobody <laughs> wants to to give away the secrets. But yeah, like as a as a dumb viewer, I'm kind of I'm more or less happy not knowing how my sausage is made, you know, and is morally gross as it can feel to actually watch football. I think that that does really kind of help help it go down smooth you know just remaining in the dark as to what actually goes into the making of this end product speaking of the occult Mm. or occultation you've written a number in a number of places about your long obsession with the horror genre in your essay Ah. about the diehard fans of insane clown posse clown court for instance thank you and somebody read that (laughs) and another one about the king Tom Savini, who did ah, special effects for now. for uh, you know Dawn of the Dead and many other yeah. wonderful films, used a real skeleton mm-hmm. in Creepshow. Given that the XFL, look at <laughs> yeah, we got a we got a live one here. <laughs> so, given that the XFL promoted itself as a more violent and shorter two-hour, like a movie-length game. And given also what mm-hmm. we now know about CTE and other degenerative mm-hmm. effects on players, could you talk about the connection between horror and football? Because it, it, it huh. it's beyond it's beyond just like oh man fell down, hmm. man tackled. <laughs> that yeah, that's a very interesting question, and I really I guess I hadn't really put those two things together, but I do think. I, maybe I kind of touch on this towards the end of the essay where, you know, in, in attempting to kind of give the the pros and cons of, you know, football and, and perhaps how it's seen both by its, you know, most ardent supporters and its fiercest critics. But I do think there's a sense that in any kind of sport in which there is physical contact, you know, in which you can hit each other, like hockey is actually my favorite sport. I, I try to write about it whenever I can. I love it very much and I love it because it does have that aspect of there is kind of mortal danger at every turn. And it mm. does, you know, it's the sense that, you know, the, the, the sword kind of is, is perched above you and it can, it can come down at any moment. And I do think that there is that element, you know, in terms of football as well, where part of the attraction 
is knowing that at any moment somebody could just just you know wrench their knee backwards or some kind of horrible kind of mortal affliction will befall someone mm-hmm. there's very much a sense that like these people are like embodied creatures and their bodies can get like maimed at any moment and i think that, that knowing that that kind of threat hangs over all the proceedings makes those little glimpses of fugitive grace that much more beautiful, right? Like when you see like a, a tailback kind of spin and avoid like a monster hit and then run like a gazelle towards the end zone. I actually think that football compared to other more improvisational sports like basketball, hockey, and soccer like I don't find as much beauty within the game personally, simply because everything is like I was saying before, kind of micromanaged and almost like algorithmically programmed. Mm. And I mean, I'm sure a real football player would kick my ass for saying that because (laughs) again, what the hell do I know? I'm not an initiate, but like, yeah, lack of improvisation aside, you know, notwithstanding like the moment when like a, a Lamar Jackson or somebody is able to like scramble out of the pocket and then make these beautiful plays out of nothing. But like, yeah, I do think that the threat of violence and the threat of like literal death, but then people facing that threat down and then maybe, you know, at one out of every like 20 plays finding a way to create like true balletic human grace that even, you know, like a Greek philosopher would find something to write home about. You know, <laughs> I think that there there is like that is inherent to the game. And inherent to the, like the, the appeal of it, I think. And that's kind of why, like for as much as I recognize, again, like how morally gross and problematic watching football is and how like nonetheless our American conception of liberty and choice will mean that, you know, football will probably never truly die. Mm-hmm. Like nonetheless, it has that that true appeal and that true beauty that's possible within it. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, and despite all of that, what what I find really interesting about the piece is that there's a there's an undercurrent of a kind of exhausted resignation toward football yeah like it's something many americans maybe including yourself have come to depend on but don't necessarily enjoy anymore possibly you know (laughs) either because of the cte stuff or just because they're just it doesn't deliver in the same way yeah the fans you interview at the XFL games seem ragged and a little desperate going through the motions. <laughs> uh, and the XFL even advertises itself as a way of staving off football withdrawal syndrome as opposed mm. to, you know, just being like a fun thing in its own right. So how far does this hollowed out <laughs> feeling stretch? Like, was it particular yeah. to the XFL or you found it to be present in football more broadly? And what do you think that signals? <laughs> um, that's a very excellent question. Yeah, it's uh, I, I'm trying to remember what the word is. I just learned it uh, like the other year and I thought it was so useful. I think it's analeptic mm. in terms of like taking a, a swig of something or like taking a kind of a dose of something to bring you back onto the level. Like when an alcoholic wakes up in the morning and like with their DT hand reaches for the bedside bottle of vodka and then they take an analeptic swig of vodka to like get them out of bed, you know, like I think, yes, the XFL was kind of positioning itself in that way. That, you know, instead of having to go through these terrible DT withdrawals over uh, winter and spring, here we are to kind of see you through to, you know, the the NFL season. And yes, I am not ashamed to say that that is 
like uh, how it, it, it kind of functioned for me uh, on the, uh, the spiritual and the sports fan level. I mean, very often it literally functioned that way when I was just downing a Limerita on the bus out to um, MetLife <laughs> Stadium. But yeah, the, the, I think what I try to hint at within the, the piece or, you know, kind of just have a conceit about it is that, like I was mentioning in the answer before, how football captures something about the way in which we conceive of, in the same way that somebody who, you know, oh, I know smoking is bad for me. I know it's an addiction. I know that it will ultimately kill me if I continue to do it. Nonetheless, I choose to do this. Mm -hmm. That is me exercising my liberty. Uh, you know, I can try to limit the the my secondhand smoke, but otherwise, like my call, leave me out of it. Right. And in the same way, like, yeah, I think that football operates on that same level of being like, well, if you want to turn your brain into mush, have at it, bro. You know, if you want to <laughs> knock 10 years, if not 20 or 25 off of your life expectancy with the off chance that you become a millionaire and like playing the league for seven years, like, yeah, why not? In in that that kind of approach to freedom and an approach to, you know, just trying to, to prop oneself up in, in, in spite of the kinds of deleterious effects that that can have. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of went off on a tangent here. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, so the, the kind of the, the resignation of football. Oh, but resignation, then, right. And then, but yeah. And what does it mean? Like how, how far does this kind of feeling extend? Yeah. the re I mean, resignation, that's a good question. Like, yeah. What, like if you're a football player, I think like lo looking at the kind of resignation from like the, the football player's point of view, it let's just say, you know, to get to the level at which you may be potentially drafted by the NFL, you have had to most likely have played football in like middle school, football in high school, mm -hmm. football in college, and never once did you get paid for it. Right. And you have also been putting your body and brain on the line at every step of the way and by you know according to some studies you have already seriously kind of mortgaged your future in a lot of important ways yeah. you know neurological and otherwise so then you know by the time you finish college you play for 4 years and you know every year only a couple hundred players get drafted into the NFL there there are hundreds if not thousands of dudes floating around every year who could theoretically play professional football and you know, that that's another reason why the, the, the dream of a spring league kind of, you know, springs eternal, if you will, because there there is this kind of supply of labor. And if you have kind of given up so many, you know, years, if not decades of your life playing this incredibly deleterious game, like I think, yeah, you jump at the chance to, you know, play the game for money and maybe have a vanishingly small chance to get signed by the big league and then really, you know, try to cash in on that dream. I think that there was only one person, one guy who was drafted by an XFL team who said, you know, no, thanks. I, I can actually make mon more money putting my computer science degree to use than I could right. playing for the XFL. And so, yeah, I think there, there was a sense of resignation that like, like this is my last shot uh, before I truly have to give up this dream and that in terms of like the fans, I don't, I don't know if it, it's resignation so much as it is just like, <laughs> I remember when I was in high school or not high school, when I was in college, I went to the university of Florida and obviously we were all enormous fans of the college football team, the Florida Gators, 
We won two championships while I was there. Go Gators. <laughs> on Saturdays, on game days, you know, me and my friends would get the keg. We'd have, you know, we'd, ha- we'd have pregame. We'd go to the game. We'd come back. Woo, victory party, whatever. Then on Sundays, we'd still have, you know, the dregs of the keg. And we'd all come back and be like, woo, yeah. And, you know, just kind of drink the warm dregs of this keg. And continue doing what we had been doing, but doing it more out of the sense that, like, we have to see this through because we're, you know, this is the life that we're living and we're like, you know, this is just what we do. Yeah. In terms of the fans, like, yes, the resignation insofar as, like, football, you know, is this, is America's sport. It is, like, it it kind of captures something so uh, intrinsic about, you know, how we conceive of, like I was saying, freedom and liberty and what you are free to do with it. And yeah, the fans are just like, yeah, we're football fans, we're Americans, and this is how we choose to uh, just football, let's go do it, you know, I guess. <laughs> it's uh, once you've once you've kind of uh, embraced that that identity and in and, and you know, it's it I, I don't wanna say it's like a kayfabe, which is the the pro wrestling term yes. for, you know, playing your role and acting as if it's real even though you know it isn't. <laughs> I think there is some some level of kayfabe involved with uh, at least XFL fandom. Right. Yes. And again, people used to comment on this and now it's kind of got away, but like Donald Trump was part of the WWE very briefly. Yeah. And yes. I think so much of what he does is totally riffing on pro wrestling. Absolutely. Like, like yeah. he, he does kayfabe. Uh, Nancy yeah. Pelosi is a heel. Hillary Clinton yes. is a heel. Like all of these things. Uh-huh. Like they're very crucial to um, his rallies. And, yeah, you know, 1000%. Yeah. Sorry, tangent. But, the, I wanna, <laughs> but to go back to the XFL, because it wasn't doing so hot when it first yeah. started. And then coronavirus, you know, was the nail in the coffin. Um, But your piece ends uh, on a hopeful note, perhaps, with the news that in August, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, one of, I mean, whatever Vince McMahon has done, uh, he can be forgiven because he gave us The Rock. And he's truly one of the, (laughs) he's a great actor. He just seems like a really nice guy. So glad that he was picked out of obscurity and we all get to share in him. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson purchased the league for 15 million, which is yeah. again a very small amount. Um, <laughs> so what do you what do you imagine will happen with it? And will anybody ever get spring football <laughs> right and turn it into a stable thing? I mean, that is like I can't imagine that dream ever dying so long as like the United States of America resembles itself in some way. Like I think that that dream, you know, until we fully balkanize and break apart and then, you know, football is only played in like three of the five new Americas. Like until that happens. Yes. I think that that dream will always be here just from like an economic point of view. Like there will always be some uh, like numbers crunching nerd, if not some brazen, you know, swaggering Vince McMahon wannabe, just looking at the, the the oversupply of labor and the seemingly insatiable demand of football and, you know, rub their hands together and say, like, I can figure out how to make this work. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that dream for the foreseeable future will always be be there. And, and that dream is just kind of premised on what seems like a certainty, which is that, like, if you just give Americans more football, us dumb shits are going to just <laughs> choose to consume it, you know, like, and that's, 
I, I know that that's true for me. Like, and not just because of not, not even that I like, like the game, which I, ultimately I'm kind of ambivalent about it, you know, in mm-hmm. the end, but like, a thing that I, I kind of wanted to put in the piece, and Matt, you kept cutting it out, goddammit. <laughs> but a thing that I really wanted to put in there was just about how, like, and, and this happened with the, you know, the, the relaunched XFL. When I wasn't going to the games, I was just putting the other team's games on on my television with the volume, you know, if not muted, then very low, mm. as I was, you know, reading, as I was writing emails, as I was cooking, like, whatever it was. I just liked having it on Mm. and I liked having it on in the same way that like maybe in the past, like I like to just look at it and know it was there. Like in the same way that maybe somebody would like look at the hearth and like feel a sense of warmth or like look at the, the, the home altar in like the corner of your hut with like a little icon on it or something like I, by having that on and being able to look at it every now and again, I got the sense that I was like somehow connected to the wider polity. I, I was having like, you know, the United States being beamed into my house and for as atomized as I am, I could like feel a part of everybody else. And like, I, I realized that I do this with sports. Like if a team that I don't have a rooting interest in isn't playing, then for as much as I, you know, like I mentioned, I love hockey, but like, let's say like an an NBA playoff game is on that features LeBron James. And then there's like an NHL playoff game that features like uh, the Columbus blue jackets. Like I'm going to put the LeBron James game on because I feel like I'm, you know, somehow connected to America. And I do think that like football for whatever else, I don't even know that a lot of Americans truly like football. It's just like, as you mentioned, it's banal, but it's true. It's like, this is a kind of weird civic religion and aside from all the like economic you know reasons that one would want to continue to revive a spring football league there is that sense that like for half of the year like a third of the year i don't know how seasons work but there's a i'm from miami we have two seasons whatever but like there is that sense for like a lot of the year where you don't have football you don't have this way to kind of feel as though you're tethered to the rest of the America, at least in like a sporting sense. So yeah, I think anyway, all my answers are long and rambling and kind of nonsensical, but to bring it all together, yes, that's uh, I do think that this, if not the XFL, then some, some attempt at the grand spring league, you know, with the new investors and the shiny logo and like, it's going to be real this time. We swear like, yeah, that will be back without a doubt in my mind. Mm. And speaking of Florida, your second book, In the Land of Good Living, A Journey to the Heart of Florida, came hey. out this July. And so would, would you tell us what it's about? And does it relate to any of these um, various currents of Floridiana or Americana that you've touched on? Good God, yes. <laughs> I will shamelessly promote this thing at, at every turn. <laughs> yeah, no, that this in a lot of ways, this piece was kind of born out of a lot of the concerns that that book brought up. And the book itself is about a 1,000 plus mile uh, pedestrian journey I took with some buds across and down my home state of Florida. And, you know, it was in a lot of ways an attempt to write like the defining Florida story about like what, what is Florida? What attracts people to Florida is Florida important? And if so, why? Mm -hmm. And yeah, a lot of it came down to the the same kind of ideas that underpin the XFL that Florida for, for most of its history 
if you know if not in fact then in spirit has existed as like this green canvas empty green canvas on which to project any and all kind of fantasies a place to come down and reshape reality uh, as you see fit a place to come and like take the raw materials of like the quote unquote real world and make them into a world that is, you know, somehow both realer and more true than like the uh, true, you know, both of those in the scare quotes than, uh, you know, the actual world could ever be. And just really giving, giving Americans like the freedom to untether themselves from any kind of, any kind of restriction, be it like, oh, uproot yourself from your Rust Belt ethnic enclave and come down to where there is no winter and you can have your own canal side paradise in Venice, Florida, yes. you know, and like live. You can create the, the, the beautiful future that you've always dreamed of and perhaps deserved. And you can do so in like a manner completely untethered from whatever is holding you back where you are now. And anyway, but it's a, a long way of saying that, like, yes, it's the same idea that it's a very American idea that on either side of our present political aisles be on, you know, like a, a left side where it says, you know, uh, the, the chooser within should be free to choose whatever kind of expression of, of true authentic selfness, whatever that may be or look like, you know, uh, free of any kind of perhaps patriarchal or, you know, just oppressive, any, anything. And then on the, you know, the right side, it says, yeah, same, same thing. You can be like this free chooser, but you can do it without any kind of economic restraints, say income tax, mm -hmm. which is the case in Florida. And so, you know, what you, you, you can be free from, from both those kinds of concerns on any, on any side of the political aisle. And you can come to this place and you can uh, kind of chase them and, and act on them in any way you see fit. And of course, what that does is just create like a, a weird peninsula, like almost like a test tube of these atomized and perhaps insane people like America's Australia, where, uh, you know, you can stand <laughs> your ground and you can, uh, you know, draw a, draw a big radar penis with your private plane, if that's uh, what you choose. And, you know, anyway, the idea of what happens when you, you found a country or a state or a sport on this idea that, yeah, if you, if you conceive of freedom this way with like little to no restraint, like you, you will probably die and this is probably bad for you, but God damn it. Like the only person who can stop you is yourself. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's very much, very much of a piece. If you liked the, the football piece, <laughs> oh man. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. This was really, um, enlightening <laughs> no thank you you've been listening to the harper's magazine podcast produced by violet luca and andrew blevins the music is cut and shoot by febrifuge harper's magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in america exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays to get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save. 